Well, this is a great place to be on Sunday morning. And uh, you're wonderful people to be with in this time as well. God bless you. As a heads up, I want to let you know that we're going to be looking at uh, uh, several passages of Scripture today. But if you have your Bible or you have a Bible app on your phone or your mobile device, you may want to um, find these passages of Scripture and kind of put a marker there so that you can refer to them easily if you wish to uh, as we go along. And they are Psalm 90 and Acts 7 and Deuteronomy chapter 34. That's Psalm 90, Acts 7, and Deuteronomy chapter 34. Shall we bow our heads and pray? Our Father, we come acknowledging today that... We are completely dependent upon You that every time we take a breath, it's because of Your grace. And every time our heart beats, it's because of Your love and Your kindness uh, for us. So we wish to humble ourselves now, and we ask that somehow by the power of Your Holy Spirit, You might strip pride away so that we can listen to You and that our lives can be encouraged and changed and that we might be refreshed in Your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was 26 years old, I completed my work at the seminary in Mill Valley, and God called me to uh, be the pastor of the First Southern Baptist Church of Porterville. Now, some of you may be saying, hmm, I don't remember where Porterville is. So for your benefit, let me just say that Porterville is several miles north of Terrabella, and it's uh, a few miles uh, east of Cotton Center, <laughs> and uh, also uh, about 45 miles north of Bakersfield over there in the, uh, in the hot country. We were a uh, young family in a community of older people, in a church of older people. Uh, Porterville was changing at that time because a lot of people were selling their houses, which prices had inflated in San Francisco or Los Angeles and were coming down to Porterville where they could retire and buy a house for practically nothing. And so we were this young family in this community of older people and doing the things that, uh, you know, young families do. We're paying off student debt and uh, trying to buy a house, and uh, having babies. I had three of my, I have four children, three of them were born there in Porterville. We, uh, we bought diapers for nine years straight because we kept having uh, these little uh, children. And uh, we were trying to get the church to grow. Now the church, as we said, uh, was in an older community, and the church was full of people that were kind of older. And uh, so they were also, because they, they were older, they were getting sick, some of them, and, and dying. And uh, this was a conversation or a topic that was frequent uh, in the church. Besides that, uh, there were two funeral homes in uh, the little city of Porterville, and I got to be good friends with the leaders of both of those uh, institutions. And so whenever there was somebody in the community that was sick or about to die, 
uh, or they had a funeral need, often they would call me and ask if I would be available to conduct the funeral. So make a long story short, over a period of seven years while I was the pastor there, I conducted more than 100 funerals. That uh, totals to about one every uh, month or so. That made a huge impact on my life. Um, I, I don't think that a lot of people that are in their 20s have a similar experience. But I was around uh, this quite a bit, and it, it, it gave me uh, a zest for living. And it gave me a real sense of the brevity of life and uh, the mortality that we face. And it reminds me of Psalm 90. Now, in your Bibles, uh, it may say at the top of Psalm 90, it may have a title that says, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. So this is a, a prayer that is associated with, with Moses. <clears throat> a great, great man of God. Joshua said of Moses... There was never a prophet like Moses in all of Israel that walked face to face with God. Psalm 103 says that Moses knew the way of God. And the book of Numbers says that he was the most humble man alive uh, in in his day. He was a great, great servant of God and one who certainly had a huge impact on our world and on history. And so we're privileged today to look into his heart and his mind, into his prayer life. This great, great man of God in Psalm 90. And so what did he say in Psalm 90? Beginning with verse 1, he said, "Through, Lord, through all the generations you have been our home. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from beginning to end, you are God. He talks about the immortal nature of God. He says, before the, 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 the mountains were formed, before Mount Tem existed, you were God. And after Mount Tem is no longer existing, you will still be God. A day in your world is like, or a thousand years in your world is like a day. He is the beginning and the end. And then he talks about the mortality of people. He says, beginning in verse 3, you turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. For you, a thousand years are as a passing day and as brief as a few night hours. You sweep people away like dreams that disappear. They are like the grass that springs up in the morning. In the morning it blooms and flourishes, but by evening it is dry and withered. Moses said, people are like dust. From dust we come and to dust we return. He said, we're like dreams that disappear. Did you dream last night? Do you remember what you dreamed? Isn't it true that sometimes we have these vociferous dreams and then we wake up in the morning and we can't even remember what we dreamed about? Our lives are like a dream that passes in the night. 
Moses said our lives are like grass that withers a blade of grass that, that uh, springs up in the morning and then when the heat comes in the daytime, it withers and it dries and goes away. When Hezekiah was about to die, he said that he was like a tent that was about to be blown away. He said, I'm dying too young. He said, I'm like a piece of cloth that's in the, in the loom and they cut it off suddenly too early. He said, that's what my life is like. And so Moses, as he prays this prayer, he says, God, you are immortal. You are forever and forever. But we are mortal. We're like dust that is here and blows away. And then he says, we're accountable to God. He says, we wither beneath your anger. Verse 7, we're overwhelmed by your fury. You spread out our sins before you, our secret sins, and you see them all. We live our lives beneath your wrath, ending our years with a groan. He says, we're accountable to you, God. He said, even even our secret sins you know about. You know, there, there are some sins that are secret by nature, aren't they? Aren't there some sins that take place only inside our minds? Like the sin of envy. You know, you... You see that guy driving down the street in the brand new Tesla and you say, what's he doing in my car? Or you see somebody that has something that you want and you say, well, that should be mine. Or what about the sin of pride? Isn't it sometimes just one that's internal? And you look at somebody else and you say, well, I'm better than he is or I'm better than she is. They're not as good as me. And we think that, well, no one knows about that. No one sees it, and maybe they don't see it. Maybe our friends never know that we had that sin of envy or that sin of pride. Maybe it's not apparent on the outside, but God sees it, Moses said. And that's why we need the blood of Christ. Because Jesus Christ shed His blood on the cross. And then He rose from the dead so that even our secret sins, even the things that no one else knows about that the Holy Spirit sees in our lives can be forgiven and be cleansed and we can have everlasting life. And by the way, I have a feeling that many of us that are here today have already received Christ and many of us are seasoned Christians and then there may be some here today who have not given their hearts to Christ. There may be some of us that are thinking about it. Maybe I'll accept Christ. Maybe I I don't know whether I'm going to do that or not. Well, no one thing that part of what it means to accept Jesus Christ is to understand your own sin and acknowledge it and acknowledge your need to be forgiven and that that forgiveness is available through the blood of Jesus Christ freely. And so Moses prays this prayer. And then he comes on in verse 12 to say something that's pretty interesting. He says, teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. And in one version it says, teach us to number our days. Did you know that our days are numbered? Well, I don't know what the number of our days are, but I do know this. We all have calendars. And whether that calendar is digital or whether it's on paper, there is a day on that calendar where it says Joe stops breathing. And there's a day that it says Joe's heart's not going to beat anymore. That's the way we all are. That's the human condition. It may sound gloomy, but that's, that's the way it is. So the Scripture says it's wise for us to number our days. Now, in the Bible... 
There are different ideas about how many days we may have life left. For example, in the, I think about the first six chapters of the book of Genesis leading up to the flood. The people up until the flood lived a really, really long time. The scripture tells us, for instance, that Noah became a father for the first time at the age of 500, 500 years. So he had been going along in his life, and all of a sudden he said, uh, my biological clock is ticking, and I guess I, I better have some children, and so he became a father. And then the scripture says that he was 600 years old when the flood came, and that he lived to be 950 years old. And he's not the only one in this boat uh, in, in the uh, first six chapters of Genesis. And then something fundamental changed when the flood happened and uh, the biblical idea of longevity kicked down around to where we could say uh, we could call the uh, Abraham, Abrahamic way of uh, numbering our days. Abraham, you know, was a descendant of Noah through the line of Shem. And uh, he was about six generations uh, below Noah. And the scripture says when he was 75 years old, God promised him a son. But that son didn't come until he was 100 years old and his wife was 90. And then the scripture says that his wife Sarah died when she was 127 years old. And that he married a woman named Keturah and had six children with her. What a man. And then the scripture says that he died at the age of 175. And he wasn't the only one like that in that particular era in the scripture. Now let me ask you this question. How would your thinking be differently? How would we be thinking differently in the Abrahamic if by his measure standing some of us still have 100 years to live? How would our way of thinking be different if we said to ourselves, well, you know, I'm... I'm a little bit up in years, but i still got 100 years to go. Or what if we said, I've got 50 years to go? How would we be thinking differently? Well, then there's the frame of reference that's represented here in the prayer of Moses in Psalm 90, where he says in verse 10, the days of our lives add up to 70 years, or 80 if one is especially strong. I like to think of uh, Moses as being about my age. Uh, I know you're not going to believe this, but next month I'm going to turn 69 years old. And so I'm thinking about Moses. Maybe he's about my age, and he's saying to himself, well, I'm going to be 70 pretty soon, and that might be the end of it. <laughs> or he says, if I'm really strong, I might make it to 80 so Moses associates being strong with being able to live a longer time. He says, if I'm especially strong, I might live to the age of 80. Now, what is the opposite of being especially strong? Well, the uh, word frailty comes uh, to mind. There is this rising tide of frailty in our lives, and we ask ourselves, can I stem the tide of frailty somehow? Frailty that has to do with uh, 
uh, a loss of muscle mass as uh, as our bones become weak and we lose our muscle mass and we perhaps lose some of our coordination and our balance and those kinds of things. Can we avoid becoming frail? And I'd like to suggest that the answer to that to a certain degree is yes by what we call strength training and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. So here is Moses about the age of uh, 68, let's say. He's about my age and he's praying, I think I might make it to 70. And so he gets to the age of 70. The little time goes by and pretty soon he says, wow, I can't believe it. I made it to 80 because I'm strong. And then he's saying to himself, well, you know, it's, it's about over. It's about over. I've lived a full life and I'm 80 years old and it's, it's about over. And then the absolutely unexpected happens. Something he did not see coming. Deuteronomy chapter... Well, excuse me, I'm going to take that back. Acts chapter 7. Stephen is preaching a sermon um, just before he was uh, killed. And uh, that sermon in Acts 7 is a good recounting of the history of Israel. Uh, it's kind of a summary of the history of Israel. And it begins, um, I guess, in about verse 30, as he's talking, he begins to talk about Moses. And he says, 40 years later, now he had just been talking about how Moses fled Egypt at the age of 40. And so when it says 40 years later, it means when Moses was 80, you see. It says, so 40 years later, in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. He went to take a closer look. The voice of the Lord called out to him, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with terror and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and they were moaning and groaning under a heavy burden, crying out to God. And God said, I have heard their groans and have come down to rescue them. Now go. I'm sending you back to Egypt. Moses says, what? What? Are you out of... Well, he didn't say, are you out of your mind, I guess, but... I'm 80 years old. I'm at the end here. What do you mean I'm going to go back to Egypt? You're sending me back to Egypt. And God said, that's what's going to happen. Well, we can think of some inflection points in the life of Moses, and this was certainly one of them. The first was when he was saved at birth by Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, he was pulled out of the river and went into the, uh, the palace of the Pharaoh and learned about all the ways of Egypt and became wise in that way. And then at age 40, when he saw that the Israelites were under oppression and he wanted to rescue them, he went out and he killed an Egyptian in a misguided attempt to rescue the Israelites. And when it was found out, he had to flee. And he went over to Midian. 
The scripture says that when he went to Midian, he sat down by a well and there were seven sisters that came, one of whom was Zipporah, who became his wife. And they couldn't get into the well because the shepherds were bigger than they were and the shepherds were keeping them from getting the water. And so the scripture says that Moses chased them away, these shepherds. And so then 40 years later, we see him here after he's been a shepherd for 40 years, we see him here at a totally unexpected moment when God speaks to him in a burning bush. Well, we can take a lot of time to talk about what else happened after that, but to save time and fast forward, let's go to the end of his life at Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 1. It says, Then Moses went up to Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab and climbed Pisgah Peach, Pisgah Peak, <laughs> which is across from Jericho. Pisgah Peak is one of the peaks at Mount Nebo. Mount Nebo is 2,600 feet uh, above sea level. And uh, Mount Tam is 2,300 so you can imagine Moses hiking up Mount Tam. At this time, you kind of get an idea. And if you've ever been to the top of Mount Tam, you know that you can see a great view there of the Bay Area and perhaps of the Pacific Ocean. And so Moses, as he looked out, he could look out to the north in Dan and, and Gilead, and he could look out off to the left, and he could see, uh, he could see the Mediterranean Sea. And God said, Moses, look out on all that land. That's the land that I'm going to give that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God said to him, you can look at it, but you'll never go there. I had an African friend in college who said that about the women's dorm. He said, I can see it, but I'll never go there. (laughs) And so God told Moses that. And then Moses, the Scripture says, Moses died. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, just as the Lord had said. The Lord buried him in a valley near Beth Peor in Moab. But to this day, no one knows the exact place. Now get this. Moses was 120 years old when he died. Yet his eyesight was clear and he was as strong as ever. So here is Moses when he's 80 years old saying, I might make it to 80 if I'm strong enough. And here at the end of his life, the Scripture says he lived 40 more years and his strength had not declined. So what are some lessons that we can learn from this story? There's a little green sheet in your bulletin and you may want to follow along with these four ideas. First of all, there is some value in physical training. There is some value in physical training. Um, Paul wrote to Timothy, and Timothy was a young man at this point, remember. And he said to Timothy, physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. He basically says to Timothy, it's good to train physically, but spiritual training is better. And you could think of the church as like a gymnasium for the soul. This is a place where we come to have our souls blessed, 
our soul strengthened, our spiritual life strengthened. And that is what the church should be all about. And Paul says that that is important. That's the most important thing. But Paul also says to Timothy, there is there is some value in physical training. And he uses a word in the Greek New Testament, which could very accurately be translated going to the gym and working out. There is value in that. He's talking about physical training, training your body, strengthening your body. Now, there are some great benefits to strength training. You feel good physically. You have stronger muscles. You have bones like bricks. So if you fall down, you won't break your arm or your leg. Your metabolism speeds up. Your balance is better. You're more resistant to disease. You have better energy, more energy. And better moods, you're in a better mood, not so hard to get along with. Um, you feel better about yourself. Wow, I did it. And I'm looking pretty good. <laughs> and then it extends our lives. But most importantly, most importantly, it enables us to be better servants of Christ. You see that? Moses could answer God's call at the age of 80 because he was strong physically, emotionally and spiritually too, but strong physically. At age 40, when he went into Midian, he was strong enough that he chased those shepherds away. When uh, he was at uh, age 80 or more, he was strong enough to carry the tablets down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments on them. When he was at the age of 120, he was strong enough that he could climb Mount Tam. He was able to serve God because he was strong. And that's the main reason, so that we can be better servants of the Lord. And then the second idea that we might consider is that the rest of our days belong to Christ. Whatever else is true today, whatever else is true, I don't know how many days there are left on the calendar for each of us, but all of those days belong to Christ. Paul said in Philippians 1, chapter 20 through 22, he was in jail at this time, and he was thinking that he might be executed. And he said, I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. For to me... Living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. Knowing this, I'm convinced that I will remain alive so that I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. Paul, what is Paul saying? He says, I might die. I might be executed. He says, I don't care. I'm looking forward to it. If we are believers and if we have faith in Christ and if we believe in what the Bible says, we would have to acknowledge that what lies ahead is far better than what we're experiencing in this life. And... It's possible that God, through His Spirit, can bring us to the place where we say, I'm not avoiding death because I fear it. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to receive what God has to offer to me in heaven. But Paul also said of these 
people to whom he's writing, he said, I know that I've got a place in your life. He said, I know that you need to grow and that you need to have joy, and I know that I can help you to do that. And so Paul says, I can't make up my mind. He says, I'd like to go and be with Christ, but I know you need me. And so I'm going to stay here, I think, Paul says, and I'm going to minister to you. And then another thought, and by the way, by the way, let me just say that this again, we're talking about some who may be here who haven't received Christ. We talked about how we need to have our sins forgiven by the blood of Christ. But there's a second part of that, and that is the surrender of our lives to Christ. It is the decision that we make to say, I don't know how many more days I've got left, but I know I'm going to give them to Christ. I'm going to live them for Christ. That's what salvation is. It's not just receiving the forgiveness of God through the blood of Christ. It's also a surrender of our future to Christ. And then the third idea is burning bushes transform and extend our futures. Transform and extend our futures. Moses thought he was ready to go at 80, but he stuck around another 40 years. And what did he accomplish during that 40 years? He took the children of Israel who were slaves in Egypt and he caused them to escape by the power of God. And he took them right up to the border of the promised land where Joshua was able to lead them on in. A major, major event in the history of the world. And he also, during that period of time, received the Ten Commandments, the terms of the covenant on Mount Sinai. And if you study our law today, our system of Jewish prudence, you'll find out that much of it is based on the laws which Moses received during that 40 years that his life was extended. So his, his, this period of time was very fruitful in the life of Moses. And it may be that... Um, Some of us are like Moses. You see, Moses had unfinished business in his life. He he knew that he was supposed to do something for those Hebrews in slavery. But here he was, 80 years old, and he said, it's all over. I won't ever be able to do anything about it. And God had unfinished business too. God wanted to lead the children out of Israel out of there. And so the unfinished business of God merged with the unfinished business of Moses, and it wound up in an extension of, a, of his life that was very, very fruitful for God. And maybe there's some unfinished business in our lives too. Maybe there's something that we think we should accomplish in the Lord's work. And maybe God is feeling that way too. And maybe maybe our unfinished business can mess with His unfinished business and we can focus the days of our lives on accomplishing that which He wants us to do. It's what I call a Christ-inspired imperative, and it's, it's different from what I call aimless longevity that we might see in the life of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, you know, was a king of Judah. He was a good king. Uh, he served the Lord and he did well as he was a king, but he came to the time when he got sick, and the Scripture says that God came to him, and God said, get your affairs in order because you're going to die. God said, you're not, going to, you're not going to recover from this illness. And Hezekiah fought back to God. He said, that's not fair. I've been a good king. I've done what you want me to do. That's not fair. He said, I'm, 
like a tent that's being blown away too early. He said, I'm like a piece of cloth that's being cut off in the loom too early. And so God said, okay, you can have 15 more years. Well, the first thing that Hezekiah did after God extended his life was receive an envoy from Babylon. They had heard that he had been sick and then he recovered. And so they sent an envoy over and he took him in the palace and he showed him all around the palace. And when they were gone, Isaiah the prophet came and said, Hezekiah, what did you show them? And he said, I showed him everything. And he said, I showed him all the jewels, all the money, all the treasury, all the riches of Jerusalem. And Isaiah said to him, what a fool you are. As a result of that, you've put Jerusalem on Babylon's radar and they will come and take over the city of Jerusalem. And Isaiah said, because of your, your foolishness, your sons will be slaves to the leaders of Babylon. And he replied, well, at least there will be peace in my day. Well, three years after God extended his life, he became the father of a man named, a child named Manasseh. And Manasseh took the throne at 12 when Hezekiah died. After the 15 years, and Manasseh was 12 years old, he took the throne. He was a terrible king, a terrible king. He reinstated idolatry. He reinstated all kinds of godless practices that his forefathers had put in place so that God could be worshipped. And in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 26, it says this, Manasseh also sacrificed his own son in the fire. Manasseh had a little baby boy and he built a fire and he took the little baby and he threw the baby in the fire as a sacrifice to Baal, a godless man. And the scripture says he practiced sorcery and divination and he consulted with mediums and psychics. He did much that was evil in the Lord's sight, arousing his anger. Well, you see, um, Hezekiah had this extension of life, but he didn't use it very well, did he? That's what I call aimless longevity. That's what I talk about. When, I, when I'm talking about we've got some days left on our calendar, how are we going to use those for the Lord? How are we going to make a difference in the world because of what we have left? And the fourth idea, one that is perhaps controversial, perhaps we can become indispensable to God. Perhaps we can become indispensable to God. Moses' last 40 years really mattered. They were purposeful. They were relevant. Up to date. You know what up to date is? You know what relevant is? That is being in tune with what God is doing in the world today. That is relevance. It's not, I know all there is about the new technology and all of those things. And it's good to know that too. But real relevance is knowing what God is up to in our day. It's essential, impactful. We've already talked about the impact that Moses had on our lives today. And I'm going to say his life was indispensable. Could God, could God have done the exodus without him? I think so, but he chose not to. Could God have given the law without Moses? No doubt, but he chose not to. 
And it could be that if we have unfinished business, we have a burning bush in our soul. And God has that burning bush in His soul. And those things mesh up together. And we are His choice for doing that particular task that He wants to see accomplished. Perhaps, rather than feeling I'm dispensable, the world has passed me by. I've done my part. I've had all I can do. Perhaps we can have in our hearts this feeling, I'm indispensable. I really matter to God and to His kingdom. And may that be the blessing that we enjoy. Shall we bow our heads and close our eyes? Our Heavenly Father, we ask now that You might move in our lives in the way that's pleasing to You. And as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, uh, we speak now to those of you who may be considering receiving Christ as your Lord. We've already told you what the two things are that really make this real in your life. First, the forgiveness that comes through Christ. And secondly, the surrender of our, our lives to Christ so that we can follow Him. And it may be this morning that you've been thinking about it and you're saying to yourself, well, today's the day when I'm going to do that. This is the day, wouldn't it be great if this calendar day on your calendar said, this is the day I gave my life to Christ, and this is the day that everything changed. Well, we'd like to invite you to make that decision this morning and to confess it openly or to display it openly as we stand together and sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. And we invite you to leave your seat wherever you are in the building and push your way down the aisle. Come down here to the front where pastor is going to be waiting to receive you. And by your coming to say, I want to receive Christ. I want to be with the Lord. Do what He wants me to do. Or maybe you're considering joining this church or there's some other decision that you think is important in your life. Uh, you're welcome to make your way here to the altar as well. So, Lord, we ask now that you have your way in this time, and we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this invitation. And as we do, uh, you make your way. Leave your seat, make your way into the island, come down as the pastor is waiting here to receive you.